In part one of my interview with Henry Diltz, the rock and roll photographer, he told us stories that some people are telling me they have listened to the episode two or three times. In part two, he continues some of these fascinating stories, and I start out by asking him about one of my favorite pictures of his, a young James Taylor sitting on the running board of a vintage truck. Stand by, this is gonna be fun. It's time for OWC Radio, Tech Talk with Creatives, conversations with host Serena Catania. I have another favorite picture, and it's James Taylor sitting on the running board of the truck. Oh, yes. Remember yeah. that one? I do. So often these pictures, I say very many, some of them, Many of them start with a phone call. I'm in my kitchen in Laurel Canyon where I had a little office in the corner and the phone rings and it was Peter Asher, guy I knew in the music business. And he said, Henry, I've got this young songwriter here just over from England and uh, we need publicity photos. Could you come over and take some publicity photos? Sure, I said, that's no big deal. Publicity photos meant black and white. This was 69. You couldn't really use color in newspaper ads and stuff. So I knew that meant black and white. And I went to Peter's house in Hollywood and knocked on the door, walked in. And he said, James is in the living room. And I walked in and there was this guy on the other side of the room sitting with his back to a big window, sort of under the piano. He was kind of behind the piano with his back to the window playing a guitar. And he was finger picking Oh Susanna like a music box, like I had never heard. I used the word mesmerized again. I was. I went over and kind of got down on my knees listening, just blown away. And then I, I said, could you play that again? I think that's the first thing I said to him. And I took pictures of him sitting right there playing the guitar. And then I said, we should go out somewhere in, in God's light where we can get some good shots. So once again, I went to Cyrus Fariar's house, <laughs> my old friend from the Green Sleeves Coffee House and the MFQ and all that, right? So he lived in a kind of a commune called The Farm. It was like a, a musical commune. A lot of musicians lived there. And so we went over there and there were little barns and sheds and things that made a kind of a nice wooden backdrop. And we weren't really talking very much. He was a quiet guy. I didn't realize till later that he used heroin a bit. He dabbled on the dark side. But at one point, he's a big, tall guy. And at one point, there was a big post, just about as tall as I was. And he walked over to it and he leaned on it like this with his arms in front of him, crossed arms. And it, wow, I looked through my camera and it just filled that rectangular space so perfectly. It was the most beautiful, serene picture. And I thought to myself, I've got to get a color shot of this to show in my slideshows because I'm always thinking about what I'm going to show on the weekend. So I said, just stand there a minute, James. And I reached down and got my other camera, which had color film in it, not the black and white. That was my assignment and took a few color shots. And that became the cover of Sweet Baby James. Accidentally, Peter Asher saw it and showed it to the art director. And, and there was one album I didn't do with Gary Burden. It was just the Warner Brothers records. So that became an accidental album cover. And when that was done, we kind of walked back out to the little driveway parking lot and there was an old truck. The old farm truck was sitting there with a running board. And, and we all gathered around just talking. And James was sitting on the running board. Peter was there at one point. He's sitting on the running board. And I, once again, I'm just taking pictures. Photo session was over, but it's never over for me. It's, 
It's the pictures you take before the photo session or after the photo session. We did his little pose publicity shots. They needed some headshots of him looking at the camera and looking cool. We got all those playing the guitar. Then we were just talking as friends. And as other people are talking, I'm very quietly taking pictures. People don't even notice. That's the tiger in the bushes part. You've shot a lot of album covers. There's one, obviously, everybody always asks you about the doors, the Morrison Hotel. Mm -hmm. And we have heard the story, but it's such a classic story. And there's some people listening who haven't heard it. Can you tell us how that photo came about, (laughs) if you don't mind? Luckily, all these album covers have a story because If I were a studio photographer, I'd say, well, come to my studio at two o'clock, stand in front of that gray paper, I'll set up the flash and, okay, boys, smile. It's like, yeah. So the doors called Gary and I, this was December of 69, and we'd done the Crosby, Stills, Nash album cover sitting on the old couch. And doors called us and said, hey, we want you guys to do our album cover. And we went for a meeting at their little office clubhouse And we said, okay, great. Have you got a a title? No, we don't have a title. And we said, well, what do you want on the cover? Do you have an idea of what you want? What kind of photo and what? No, we don't have any ideas. And and we're going, okay, well, okay. So we're going to start from scratch. Gary's thinking. And Ray Manzarek, the keyboard player, speaks up at that point randomly. My wife, Dorothy, and I were driving through downtown LA the other day, and we saw this old funky hotel. It said Morrison Hotel on the window. And we went, wow, we all perked up. That sounds amazing. And we jumped right in their Volkswagen van and drove down there that afternoon. And there it was, a beautiful, huge window with red lettering Morrison Hotel and like a rainbow across the top. And we said, that, that is great. we got to take pictures here. Went back a few days later with the group, the four of them and Gary and I, six of us, and we walked in the lobby lobby was totally empty. The Morrison Hotel was a a flop house. It was a a transient hotel. And it was where winos went to sleep it off and then go drink some more that evening. And so it said in the window, rooms 250 and up. That means $2.50 to rent a cot for a few hours. So we walked in there and walked in the lobby and the, the guy, there was only one guy there, a young guy behind the desk. And I said, we're just going to be over there taking some photos. And he said, no, no, you can't. He got very animated. Oh, you can't take any pictures without the, and I said, why not? The owner, you've got to get his permission. You cannot do anything like that. And so I finally, I, I said, well, where's the owner? Well, he's not here and he doesn't allow anybody. To. So the guy was really adamant. So I said to the, my friends, the group and, and Gary, I said, hey, that guy says we can't shoot in here. I said, let's go outside. We can stand on the sidewalk in front of that window. They can't stop us on the sidewalk. And so we did. We walked out. And as they were going to stand in front of that window, I noticed back through the window in the back of the lobby, a big light had gone on. And I could see it under the lettering. And I looked through the window. I said, hey. That's the elevator light. Look, the desk is empty. The guy left the desk and went up in the elevator. So quick, run in there, you guys. And they did. They ran in and they hit those spots. Nobody said, okay, a little to the left. Jim, you get in the middle. No, bang, the four of them sitting on these chairs that were there in the window. And it was so symmetrical and perfect. And I started clicking away up close, kind of getting just them behind the glass And kind of from the side, seeing the lettering go down the window. And Gary Burden said one of the things that he always said to me, back up, back up. 
get the whole thing, that we were a really good creative team. I got to use my eye and photograph whatever I saw, but he kind of made that happen. He made the moment happen by getting people to the place. And then he, he would say one of two things. He would say either, he would always say, just shoot everything that happens. Film's the cheapest part. <laughs> you know? And exactly that's what I did anyway. Just saw everything I looked at, I wanted to take a picture of it. I filmed, photographed everything. And he didn't even need to say that. But he did need to say, back up, back up, get the whole window. Same with the Crosby, Sills, Nash on the couch. I was up close on them. Back up, get the whole house, he would say. So he was my teacher. So we took that picture, one roll of film, took five minutes, and they ran out of there. And the guy didn't even know it. And then we're out on the sidewalk next to the Volkswagen van in downtown L.A. And Jim says, let's go get a drink. Probably the only thing he said all day. He didn't talk much. He was a poet. He was bemused. He liked to listen. He liked to watch people and nod his head and kind of wink his eye. And he, he was kind of standoffish. I don't know what his Chinese animal is. That's, I got I to gotta look that up. Yeah, that would be interesting. Yeah. When you get the astrology sign, the Chinese animal, and the numerical, your life path number, what do they call that cross-section of person? You can get an idea of kind of the area of where their attention probably is. I should look up my number 22. Is your number 22? Mm-hmm. Are you kidding me? Mm-mm. Wow. Well, you get your number by adding up all the digits of your birthday. You add them up until you get one number. But if that one number is an 11 at some point, you add them up and you get an 11, which becomes a two, or you get a 22, which becomes a four. Those are master numbers. If you have 11 or 22, those are master numbers. And those say that there's a possibility that you could become an amazing person. You have a gift. I'm working on it really yeah, hard. <laughs> yes. You, you have the potential of being an amazing. As, and they say sometimes it's a little hard for some people because they sort of know that they could do anything and they don't quite know how to do it. They could do anything. So that kind of scares them, makes them kind of apprehensive of which way they should go because it's all a possibility. But a 22 is, is very rare. I've read where they say it's sort of Jesus-like. <laughs> if you have a 22, you're very, very lucky, very blessed. It's a wonderful number. I am blessed. Life is good to me. Life is good. And it's not done yet. I have a friend, a musician. He named his publishing company, How Lucky Are We? Oh, nice. And so for 20 years now, I've been saying, how lucky are we? My dad always used to say, who's got it better than us? Oh, there you go. (laughs) And you know, when I used to go to visit my spiritual teacher, Betty Walton, before she walked into the next room, I would knock on the door for once a week. We'd have like an hour and a half session. And she was psychic and very spiritual. And my teacher and... She would open the door, a little white-haired lady with a little white poodle, and she'd say, hi, how are you? And I'd, sometimes I would say, for instance, oh, I'm fine, Betty, but my car broke down and my girlfriend ran away and I can't pay the rent. And she would look at me and smile and say, isn't it great? You know? <laughs> so no matter what you said, she would say, isn't it great? And I swear. After a hundred times of that, everything is is great. What she was implying was, isn't it great that we're alive and we have feelings and we can go through all of this BS? We can step in dog shit. I mean, (laughs) life is great. So between how lucky are we and isn't it great, you know, 
That's wonderful. It's wonderful to keep those things in mind. I'm looking at this list of everybody you've shot. I don't even know who to ask you about, but there's somebody that's been in the news a lot lately who has been around for a long time, and that's Bruce Springsteen. Mm-hmm. You've shot Bruce, right? A little bit. Bruce was an East Coast guy, of course, living in New Jersey. I was pretty much a West Coast guy. I didn't do San Francisco. Jim Marshall was the photographer up there who photographed the Grateful Dead and Jefferson Airplane, Janis Joplin, Santana, all that. I was the Southern California guy in Laurel Canyon doing CSN and Joni Mitchell and Neil Young, Jackson Brown and Mama Cass and those people, that school of music. So Bruce, yes. One time I went to San Francisco to a Columbia record convention. The lighting guy, Chip Monk, who was the lighting guy at Woodstock and Monterey Pop and a dear friend of mine, wanted me to come up and photograph his lighting rig and kind of document setting up, took him a couple days to set up this banquet room with lights and build a stage for the record company to have a convention and have all their acts play. Chris Christopherson and gosh, I, I can't think of all the groups that were on that record label, a number of them, and this young guy, Bruce Springsteen. So I wasn't really hired to shoot the music, but I was up in the balcony with the lighting crew looking down and I hadn't heard of this guy. So after these wonderful musicians had played, This guy came out wearing a little wife beater T-shirt and big sunglasses and a scruffy beard. I thought, well, I better take a few pictures and document it. I wasn't really interested. He sang great, but who is he trying to be? And I took about six pictures on a proof sheet roll. And then he became Bruce Springsteen. (laughs) (laughs) That's amazing. I could have shot four rolls, but I didn't. I shot like six frames. And then, of course, I've photographed them at various Peace Sunday things and Ban the Bomb concert and here and there. My dear friend Danny Clinch is really his photographer back on the East Coast. Talk to us about Woodstock. Woodstock started with a phone call in my kitchen in Laurel Canyon. It was the aforementioned Chip Monk. His name was Edward Beresford Monk. And of course, all his life, people called him Chip. So Chip called me and And I knew him from folk days, from lighting tours and things. He was the lighting guy, the best one around. And he said, Henry, I'm calling you from New York. We're going to have a huge concert out here in a few weeks. And you should come out here. You should be here. I said, well, Chip, yeah, I've heard there was going to be a big concert there. But I don't know those people. I don't know how to get a photo pass. And he said, well, I'll talk to the producer. And the next day, Michael Lang called me and he said, Chip says we need you. I'm sending you $500 and a plane ticket. And that was it. And And I flew out there three weeks before the concert. And they were just building the new stage there at the Asker's Farm at the bottom of this big green hillside of alfalfa. And, And so I spent a good part of three weeks walking around, photographing the building of the stage in the office, people on telephones and all the hippie carpenters hammering and sawing. And in the afternoon, the girls from the office would come over with drinks and food, lunch. And it was just like summer camp, upstate New York, summer camp. And I was having a great time. And my job was just to wander around and observe everybody. The hog farm arrived from New Mexico a week before. And they were setting up tents and things in the woods and setting up kitchens, building yurts out of just two by fours and plastic cloth. And, oh, my gosh, setting up teepees. 
It was so much to photograph. And every afternoon, Michael Lang would come over to the stage. He'd either be riding a horse or riding a motorcycle. One day he came driving a bulldozer and, uh, and I'd photograph him and walk around with him and whoever he would talk to, Chipmunk or Bill Hanley, the sound guy. And yeah, it was all very busy, everybody busy building and getting ready. And then one day I saw about 10 people sitting up at the top of the hill of that big alfalfa hill blowing in the breeze. And the stage was like a wooden deck of an aircraft carrier. And then you had this green alfalfa blowing in the wind. It was so beautiful. And it was a group of people sitting up there. I said, what are those people doing out here in the country, sitting there on the hillside? I said, oh, yeah, that's right. I forgot. It's going to be a concert, you know, because it was summer camp. And then the next day, there were thousands of people. And then the next day, there were hundreds of thousands of people. And I could no longer drive my rented station wagon a mile down the back road to my boarding house. The little country roads were filled with cars parked on each side of the road. So there wasn't room for a car in the middle. And the middle was full of throngs of people walking towards, walking towards the venue, the field, the big alfalfa field. And then, boy, by Friday, you'd stand on stage and it was just people. You couldn't see the green alfalfa anymore, just a sea of faces as far as the crest of the hill and all the way to the left and all the way to the right. Just people, a sea of people. And then somebody Saturday morning brought a copy of the New York Times and had an aerial photograph showing the little square in the middle where we were standing on the stage. And we learned that all the roads were closed and no cars could drive. And it was wow, we said. And we were like in the, the center of the eye of the hurricane, kind of. I really spent most of my time on stage because that was at that point, my assignment was to capture all the music and photos. I did walk out a little bit. I went to the hog farm a few times where I had friends and I wanted to sort of see what they were doing. And at one point late in the afternoon, I walked over there and I missed a few groups when they played. I missed Santana. I missed the Grateful Dead. Yeah, but they were Northern California groups. I didn't know them. So I went to the hog farm and I was walking back and it was dark. And I was way at the back of the crowd and I could hear Chipmunk's voice on stage. He became the voice of Woodstock. They'd forgotten to hire an MC. And at the last minute, Michael Lang said, Chip, you get out there. And he had a beautiful voice like a DJ. Ladies and gentlemen, Crosby, Stills, and Nash. I went, oh my God, that's my friends. I'd just done their album cover a month before. No, when did I? Yeah, a couple of months before I'd done their first album cover on the couch. And I thought, oh my gosh, I've got to get through 400,000 people. We didn't know how many people. It was just a huge crowd. But I got down, I walked through and around, and I got down there. I missed the first couple of numbers because those were my friends that I knew so well. Yeah, that was Woodstock. And then Jimi Hendrix was supposed to close the show on Sunday night, but everything was so backed up that he didn't go on until dawn Monday morning. We were all kind of a little groggy. I'd caught a few hours sleep here and there in the back of my station wagon. In fact, that morning I woke up to hear Chip's voice over the loudspeaker because it had been quiet for a while. And people were kind of sleeping in the field and they were setting the stage up. And, and he said, ladies and gentlemen, Jimi Hendrix. And I, I went, whoa, and I jumped out and grabbed my cameras and ran up. I had the, of course, the big pass, all access pass, ran up on stage and stood behind an amplifier, right sort of next to Jimi Hendrix. So I was like 20 feet away looking at him from the side of the stage. 
And when they walked out, the band of gypsies, they all had these colorful bandanas and the, wow, it was just kind of mesmerizing before they played a note. And then, of course, they played. And I had seen Jimmy at Monterey Pop a couple of years before, and, I, and I'd seen him at the Hollywood Bowl. But his music was so amazing. And then the surprising thing was when all the other musicians stopped playing and he played the Star Spangled Banner. Just a solo on the guitar. Beep, 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 beep. And it echoed against the hillside and came back. And then he started putting in all the, the air, you know, guns and airplanes and really made it the war song that it was. Later, thinking about that, Francis Scott Key wrote that song overlooking Fort McHenry as the British bombarded it from the sea, from their ships, cannonballs and flares and things in the air. He really brought it to life. And there was that thing. And I've said this before every time, but there was that because we were all peace and love hippies all against the war. We hated the idea of being drafted and sent to a foreign country to shoot somebody we didn't know. That was not peace and love and world brotherhood. And so we were very much against the government. And that sounded like the official song. Wait a minute. Why is he playing that song? That's their song. And then. No, but wait, <laughs> that's our song. He's reclaiming that for us. Oh God, it was, I choke up. It was an amazing feeling. It was an encampment of peace and love, hippies, everybody smoking God's herb, enjoying the music and living the life of brotherhood and helping each other out, sharing. I mean, there were no fights. There were no bad incidents. Everyone had a great time, which is the way Michael Lang envisioned it. Three days of peace and music, I think, or love, peace, love, and music. And that's what it was. Everyone on the lawn listening to the greatest act of our time. And they were. It was such great, great music. Joe Cocker was so great to see him. We'd all heard of him writhing around and moving and singing with the music and feeling the music in his body. Gosh, that was so great. And then Richie Havens was so amazing. He started the show that Friday afternoon when there were what turned out to be 450,000 people sitting there waiting. And he walks out there and starts just singing. And they said, go back, sing more. The next act hadn't arrived. They had to come in by helicopter because all the roads were closed. And they said, go back out there, Richie, sing some more. And he sang every song he knew, do something else. And so he just started singing freedom, freedom. And he made up that, that amazing song right on the spot. Those were great moments. And I was right there on stage photographing all of that. That is the fly on the wall. Sometimes I think of myself as like the little boy climbing under the circus tent. And you climb under that circus tent, you get in for free, and you just get to watch everybody do their amazing things. So I love that. When I think of the path of my life, I'm so glad that I picked up musical instruments. My mother played the piano. I took piano lessons when I was little, but I could play by ear. So when the piano teacher would show me what the notes said, I would just play what she played. I, I didn't read the notes. I kind of had music inside me, and I'm so glad that I learn to play and become a musician and join a group, essentially a choral group, which I'd sung in all my life, but with just four people. Instead of 20 people singing bass, 20 people singing alto, 20 people singing soprano or tenor, it was just one of us for each of those sections. That was a quartet. And you get together with your friends and you sing these beautiful notes 
If you sing your part alone, it makes no sense at all. It's a crazy melody. And when you put them all together, it makes this very lush chordal harmony that you can sort of only do when you're standing there with your dear friends. You have one key of the four keys kind of to open up that door. Gosh. You're still at it. You still perform as a musician and you still, from what you've told me, you walk around, you always have this little camera with you, right? I have a little pocket cannon. I started out on Nikons and and in 2005, when digital photography was starting in the 2000s, I said, I always said, no, I am a film guy. I always, slides, I wanted transparencies for slideshows. And then I shot black and white a lot because people needed black and white, but I didn't care about it because really I wanted a slide for a slideshow. When digital started, I said, I'll never go digital. I'm a film guy for 40 years, 45 years at that point. And then one day I picked up a friend's Canon with a great big telephoto lens and I looked through it. I said, oh my God, this is focusing itself. And it sets the reading itself. I always had a little spot meter I had to carry around and take a reading on someone's face to see how to set those numbers on the camera so that it would look right. But these cameras, you didn't have to do any of that. You just aim it and it takes a reading. It sets itself. It's perfect. It's right on. And you just push the button. Oh, my God, that was a magic machine to me. And so I started going digital. So now I have 40 years of slides and negatives and 20 years of digital chips on the computer. And so we have to go back to the slides and the negatives and scan them to put them on the computer now. But digital photography is great. One of the greatest things is when you shoot transparencies and you're working for somebody, they want the transparencies. Those are the pictures. And there are no negatives. It's just that slide. If it's a record cover and the record company needs to see a bunch of your transparencies, often you never get them back again. You forget or they lose them or whatever, especially people who work for other companies. They lose all their pictures that way. Well, with digital, you keep all the pictures and you give them all away. So every digital picture I've ever taken, I have, even though all the clients who wanted the pictures got them. So OWC is helping you scan your slides, right? Yes, exactly. I think I've taken probably about a million photos approaching when I just start counting. There's got to be, I don't know, geez, 300,000 digital photos, maybe something like that. I sometimes take 100 a day just out fooling around, looking at stuff. And so there were all these slides. They weren't all digitized. So, and there's no copies of them anywhere. And so somebody, Brian Vincic, who works with Larry at OWC, said, Henry, do you have copies of all these somewhere? Are these all safe somewhere? No. I said, Brian, that's it. They're just there on the wall. Oh my God. He said, these need to be scanned to protect them, to save them. And then he talked to Larry, his friend Larry, who said, let's do that. Let's get the equipment and save that guy's archive. So that is absolutely amazing. And so they did, they scanned every single picture that I took of musicians. And that's half the pictures I have. Half the pictures I have are music and people making music, that whole side of life. And the other half are the pictures of my coffee cup and my children and flowers and old trucks and fire hydrants and 
T-shirts and tattoos and graffiti and just different things that I look for to photograph. I, if I see a good Mickey Mouse somewhere, I, I remember the first time I saw a Mexican kid had a soccer ball with Mickey Mouse on it. And I took a close-up of it, a big round soccer ball in the middle of that rectangle that had Mickey Mouse on it. And then I was in somebody's garage and they had a sticker and it was Mickey Mouse giving the finger and it said, hey, Iran. You know, up it was during the day, the Iran hostage crisis. Up yours, Iran. <laughs> and I, t- I said, oh, my God, there's another Mickey Mouse. Well, now in my slideshow, I could show one Mickey Mouse and then I could show another Mickey Mouse. And then when I got five Mickey Mouses and that started because when I photographed my friends all week long to show them pictures of them on the weekend, it's like in the process of doing that week after week, month after month, you'd get half a dozen pictures of friends, like maybe reading a book. Cyrus was always reading a book and I took many pictures of him laying on a couch with a book. And oh, here's another friend, Jennifer. She's reading a magazine. Okay, so it was a way of editing my slideshow. I'd have four or five pictures of people reading. It's the reading series. And then it was the sleeping. Cyrus, again, is into this time and again. He was always taking a nap. And he would be taking a nap, and I'd take a picture, and then I got other people sleeping, taking a nap. And then it was the napping series, and then eating. I remember we went to Disneyland. Somebody was about to take a big bite out of a hot dog with their mouth wide open, and it went click. They didn't need to know it. And then I had the eating series, people with a fork up in the air and their mouth open, you know, and it was funny. And then I think the next series was the toilet series, because when I was on the road with the Love and Spoonful in 66, Zolianovsky, the lead guitarist, was very animated and full of energy. And he came bopping into my motel room and squirted lighter fluid on the mirror in the motel room and threw a match on it. And it went boom and just burned, just burned the lighter fluid off the mirror. And it was out. Then he went in the bathroom and squirted lighter fluid in the toilet and threw a match in it. And I grabbed my camera and we flushed the toilet and the flame shot up out of the toilet. So I had a picture of the flaming toilet. And then a little while later, I was invited by the Whiskey A Go-Go to do slideshows while the act was singing on stage, it would be a, a screen on either side of the stage and two projectors just showing random, just random pictures. And the doors were on stage there singing Light My Fire. And by golly, that flaming toilet came up right on the screen next to Jim. I couldn't believe it. I took a picture of it. So you have them performing and then your picture on. The, oh, that's awesome. Yeah, but it was one of the first years that I was really photographing. I, like I say, I don't use lights. And I, I didn't start off photographing people in clubs and, and concerts, really. It took a while to get to that. My camera couldn't really do that very well. I was up in the balcony, but I did get a shot. You can see the flaming toilet and you can see Jim a little bit blurry and the doors on the stage. Do you feel like that's kind of been your life, that you've been in the right place at the right time with the right people and you've led a happy life? Well, you know, <laughs> Some kind of right, I suppose. It was my path anyway. Whatever my path was, I was photographing to the left and the right as I trod along the path. And these days, the universe has something to do with it. The universe figures this out. And by saying that, you might mean that, hey, there's karma involved. There's, there's angels and spirit guides involved. And I say, what a total accident. I walked into that secondhand store that morning and Cyrus said, oh, a camera, I'll have one. And I said, yeah, me too. I wasn't thinking about taking photographs in any way. I never thought about it. 
But I was interested in colors, and that's from smoking God's herb. I really, colors became alive to me. And I even had colored pens, sometimes in a little notebook, I would draw colors of things to get two colors together, you know, red and yellow. I'd see someone with a red skirt and a yellow sweater, and I'd say, wow, that really makes my eyes do something. I'm going to draw that. And then when I got the camera, I could do, I could just push the button and grab that, snag that, grab any vision that interested me. And much of it did. And so it was the framing of things. And then when you introduce the music part, the people, that's another whole other element. It's people and you're framing the people, but then you wait for that moment. When you're photographing a fire hydrant, which I also have a huge series of every city in the country has a different color. In L.A., they're all yellow. In San Francisco, they always were white with a light blue top. Very pretty. In New York, they're black and silver. And red, you think of a red fire hydrant, you don't even see many red fire hydrants. But when I traveled around the country, especially with the Love and Spoonful, every city we went to, I would see a different color fire hydrant. And so I have hundreds of fire hydrants. And that's my fire hydrant series. And I would show that to my friends. And then the tattoo series. Back in the 60s, people would have a little tiny smiley face on their knee or something. And I'd say, oh, let me take a picture of that. Nowadays, my own son is is a bass player and he's covered with tattoos. (laughs) And now it's that way. But before it was like, oh, what a sweet little tattoo on your arm. Do you mind if I take a picture? Same thing with T-shirts. There's so many beautiful T-shirts Well, you can't own them all, but I could take a picture of all of them. I own a huge collection of literally hundreds and hundreds of T-shirts. And of course, each one has a person in it doing something. So that's interesting. And that becomes a a series. And I want to make books of all of these these little series of of things. You really should. What's next for you? What what is something you haven't done that you want to do? I got to tell you, so as you proceed along in a profession of photography and you eventually you get an archive, right? I know people say, oh, Henry, you know, after 20 years, 30 years, you must have quite an archive. And once again, I would say, oh, archive, that sounds kind of professional. I don't think so. I've got boxes of negatives, but I don't know about this archive thing. But sure enough, in the 2000s, it turned out that I had a, a visual history of all that music. It was an archive. And friends of mine got together and said, well, we should open up a little gallery and put your pictures on the wall. And we did that. We did little pop-ups for a year across the country in 2000. And then we opened up a little place in Soho on the street with a window. And we rented this place by the month. And one day I was looking at the window with my partner, Peter Blatchley. And I said, look, Peter. And we had a huge blow up of the Morrison Hotel album cover in the window. And people would walk by in Soho and stop and look at it. They'd walk by and glance and stop and go back and look at it. And then they'd walk in the shop. It was like a magnet. And I said, Peter, look at that. But look at our window is blank. We got no name on our window. Look at that wonderful lettering in that photo at the bottom of the window. And our window is completely empty. And he said, I'm going to get a painter and we're going to paint Morrison Hotel on our window just to mirror that big photo. And it was the pure accident was in that picture. And we didn't think, hey, let's call our gallery that. But that happened, of course, when we put that lettering on the window, it was then automatically the Morrison Hotel Gallery. For a couple of years, it was only my pictures on the walls. And then Peter said, you know, Henry, we should have a second photographer. Who of all your peers in the photo 
world would you like to have showing his pictures next year? And I said, Jim Marshall. Because Jim Marshall was, by then, my friend. I'd met him at Woodstock and Monterey Pop and different places. And he was the Northern California photographer. And so we put him in there. And gosh, we had an opening on a weekend when it was the New York Photo Show. And there were scads, hundreds of photographers in New York. And so we had a huge opening with 25 music photographers there when we took photos and hung out and had a wonderful time. And and then we added another. We added Bob Gruen in New York. We added Neil Preston in L.A. and then Danny Clinch and then Lynn Goldsmith. And then one by one, we had then English photographers. When nowadays we have like 135 photographers that we represent in the Morrison Hotel Gallery. And we have one in New York in Soho. We have one in L.A. at the Sunset Marquee Hotel and one in Maui at Mick Fleetwood's nightclub there on the ground floor. We have a photo gallery and it's great. People want to see their heroes on the wall. I had a friend years ago bought a huge blow up of Jerry Garcia from me and he put it right on above his mantle in his house in Laurel Canyon. And he said, you know, Henry, every day when I get home from work, I open the front door and that's the first thing I see. And it just puts me back. It makes me feel so good. And that's what people want to put their musical heroes on the wall because music is such a huge part of our life. You think, you think, well, what percentage? 50% of your life? I had a, a lady say, oh, it's 100% of my life because I, there's music everywhere I go. Everything I do, I'm always listening to music. It's the soundtrack of our lives. And of course, that's the songs we, we loved growing up put you right back there. The love song that have meaning in your life and all, wow. Then you get these musicians playing this beautiful music, starting with Pete Seeger, you know, and the Weavers, and then the Kingston Trio, and then Crosby, Sills, Nash, Joni Mitchell, James Taylor. What amazing, mesmerizing music. Sweet Baby James is like, God, it's like a, it's like an anthem. To me, I sang both of my little children to sleep singing Sweet Baby James. Desperado. Oh my God, what a song. Just what an anthem. And you hear Don Henley sing it, and it's just so beautiful. And then you hear Linda Ronstadt sing it, and oh, it brings tears to my eyes thinking about it. It really does. So this music is such a huge part of our lives, and it's such a huge part of my life, too. So happy. I guess it wasn't an accident that I drifted into something that would put me there with that music. I went to college. I went to West Point. I went to college again, sang in a coffee house, became a folk singer, became a photographer. I never had to get up early in the morning and go to a job. So that was a lucky break. Is that karmic? I don't know. Born in America, which is what a wonderful thing that is. How lucky are we, right? Isn't it great? We could be born in a place where we were going to get, you know, terrorized and ransacked and our children's killed. And why is that? Karma. It's karma. We've all lived hundreds of lives. We've all been killed hundreds of times. But here we are in this lifetime, in the Aquarian age, where we're supposed to start thinking higher, thinking of our higher vibration, our higher frequency. And, and by golly, I think we are. We just had a big storm in our country. And it's like the storm, the storm before the calm, really. We are going to be setting out in this Aquarian age and learning new things. And, and it is going to be peace and love. We're going to learn what does it mean to be a human being? It means we're all a part of the same thing. 
we're all a part of the same family. We're all a little spark of the divine when we need to merge and feel that way about each other instead of having all this hate and war and ugliness. We don't want that. And I think it's going to change. It is going to change because it's the Aquarian age. I think so, too. And I think you are an amazing gift to all of us. I'm so happy that I got to meet you and you still have a lot ahead of you. You're not done yet. (laughs) I don't mind. It's all an adventure. And by the way, the adventure does continue. When I walk into the next room, I'm asking to stay. I'm, I mean, I don't know. I'm 82. Another 10, 20 years would be good. They say we will be looking at 120 years of life pretty soon with all the stuff we're learning about health. And I take 25 vitamins and supplements every morning. I'm taking enzymes and amino acids and CoQ10 and omega. I'm taking all that stuff. Vitamin A, B, C, D, E, Well, you certainly have a lot of energy. Tell people where to go to learn more about you. Like you have henrydiltsphotography.com, right? No, if you go there, it just leads you to the Morrison Hotel Gallery.com. That's really where all my pictures are. Morrison Hotel, don't forget gallery.com. And you can see all of our 135 photographers' pictures. You can put my name in, anybody's name, or Neil Young, Joni Mitchell. You'll see pictures of them. I'm doing books. You said, what now? What do I do now? Well, I was going to say after 55 years, let's see, 66, so about 55 years, I think, something like that. It becomes books, galleries, and museums. I still take pictures. I still get people ask me to, and it's mostly young people. It's people who need pictures. I'm not going on the road with David Bowie and Bruce Springsteen. It's a young actor, a young musician, and the young group. Hey, we got this group. Would you take a group shot of us? They're the ones who need them. And that's what I did in the 60s, too. All those people I photographed weren't really world famous when I photographed them. I say I photographed all my musician friends in Laurel Canyon and one by one, they became famous. How lucky for me. Yeah, I want to do books and I want to do galleries and I want to travel and I want to see people. I want to just keep doing what I'm doing, only just more. And like I said, life is chapters. I like to think of a couple more chapters. I can think of five or six places I wouldn't mind moving to and living and maybe five or six ladies I'd like to marry. It's an open book. One of the Van Dyke Parks used to say to me way back in the 60s, he'd say, Henry, the world is our oyster. We just have to find the right sauce. (laughs) (laughs) So that's it, I think. Lead a good life. Meet people. Realize that, that friends are second chakra is you and other people. And they always say, that's like bankers and sex. You need other people. It's you and other people. And But I think it's, no, it's you and all the other people that are just like you. Their bodies are made up of these living cells. And while they're all alive and functioning really well, and you eat to satisfy them, you take these a menu of, of supplements to make your little cells of mitochondria, the little motors in each cell to make them happy and make them work really well. And then you can enjoy good health and a good life. you got to pay attention to that. Then you can walk around in your body a little bit longer. And then you drop your body, go into the next room, and wow, you start something even more amazing than life on Earth. We're down here physically learning about physical things and making choices and doing things and reacting to each other. On the other side, we've gotten glimpses. We've all been there. We don't really remember, but we've gotten glimpses of what it's like. And so we know 
it's something to look forward to. <laughs> well, if you come to San Diego, we have to have a slideshow here. <laughs> oh, we're going to do a West Coast tour. I did a couple of tours with Patty Boyd, who was married to George Harrison, and then with Mick Rock, who shot a lot of English musicians and David Bowie. And so I do a slideshow with another musician and we do like a two hour, I do an hour and then the other person does it. We have to do a, a West Coast tour as soon as we can. The big booking companies aren't really booking until 2022. That's when we know it'll be open, knock on wood. Well, in the meantime, you can get everything done with the scanning and archiving, and you have Gary helping you over there, right? Yep. Gary is my scanning. With the video. Scanning machine. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I'm looking forward to it all. I think we all were in another life together. And Paramahansa Yogananda, in his book, Autobiography of a Yogi, says that. He says, when you meet a new person and you're instantly drawn to them and you feel like you really know them, that's somebody from a past life. Yeah. And then I think, well, okay, I know a lot of people like that, but I mean, what about the guy on the corner store? What about the mailman? What about the FedEx guy just comes and drops a box and maybe you knew him too. Those are all our angels. Yeah. Maybe we all knew each other. It's all great. It's all good. Yes. <laughs> Thank you for taking the time, Henry. It's wonderful to get to know you. And I know that you're going to be very inspiring to a lot of people listening. We have to stay in touch. I'm going to be talking with Brian and Larry O'Connor and the folks at OWC about what they're doing with all your scanning, because I'm fascinated with that workflow, keeping track of this huge library. So we'll do another interview with them about all of that. Yes. And please stay in touch and let us know when you do start your tour. Yeah, let's stay in touch. Let's talk every month and make sure we know what's going on and call me anytime or text me or email me or whatever. I will. And you do the same. Take care. Okay. See you later. Thank <laughs> Here's you. Here's a COVID hug. <laughs> Bye. Bye.